This is Zach Driscoll, and I'd like to welcome you to the Real Men Podcast. To find more Bible teaching and content like this, visit markdriscoll.org. And don't forget to set aside a good chunk of time, because my dad has a habit of preaching lengthy sermons. Well, howdy, gentlemen. Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Excited to join you tonight for Real Men. And uh, you may or may not know my story. I grew up in a Catholic family. Uh, My mom loved Jesus. I did not. It wasn't anybody's fault but my own. And we didn't really have a Bible at our house. We had a Bible that was about the size of a coffee table. And Jesus on the front had long hair, was wearing a dress and uh, sandals. So I never opened it. I didn't figure there was really anything in there that I was very excited about. Didn't really know much about the Bible until I went to college. And then had to study a lot of philosophy uh, at a state university. And they kept quoting a guy named Augustine and kept talking about a guy named Paul. So I thought, well, I wonder what this is about. So I started opening the Bible and actually became a Christian reading the Bible. Since that time at age 19, that was 30 years ago, I've devoted kind of my whole life to the Bible. God spoke to me when I was 19 at a men's retreat, said, Mary Grace, glad to do that preach the Bible, train men, plant churches. So that's what I've been doing, focusing my life on helping men learn the word of God and love their wives. That being said, fast forward, I've been a senior pastor about 25 years. I preached or taught through maybe roughly somewhere around half of the books of the Bible, verse by verse. And as we come together in Real Men, every week I'm gonna tell you that you need to be in the word of God and the word of God needs to be in you. But I also wanna give a little bit of a caution and maybe even a correction today. And so I wanna talk about how men can use and abuse the Bible. Uh, The Bible says that this is a sword. That's what it says in Ephesians and Hebrews. You can use this for war against Satan and the demonic realm and the enemies of God. You can also use this to hurt people that God never intended for that weapon to be used on in that way. So I wanna start just by saying that your family is better with the Bible. Your family is better with the Bible. And as I continually encourage you to read, study, pray, memorize God's word, here are some practical reasons why. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. In your marriage and in your family, you wanna live in harmony, peace. Who doesn't wanna go home to a house where there's a sense of peace, calm, it's a relaxing, enjoyable, friendly, warm, life-giving environment. How do you have that? Well, to live in harmony with one another, you need to agree with one another, 1 Corinthians 1.10. When you agree with one another, there's more harmony in your home, you all agree. And the best way to come to agreement and harmony in a home is to have the home founded on the Bible, the word of God. Uh, my wife, Grace and I, we, we've been together, like I said, since we were 17, I'm 49. We've been together coming up, I guess, on 32 years. Uh, I love her with all my heart. We're different in every single conceivable way. Literally, the movies that we like, the sports that we would watch, the hobbies that we would pick. My wife, I'll be honest with you, my wife does not know how to turn on the TV. She does not know how. If I'm traveling out of town, she does not turn the TV on. She would never, ever, ever watch TV. She would do puzzles. I would not. We're different in every single conceivable way. We take all of those sort of personality tests and uh, we always score polar opposites, but there's one thing that we're always bullseye on, it's spiritual agreement. We've taken those marriage tests and it says, well, you guys don't agree on anything, but you agree on God and the Bible and the stuff that the God of the Bible says. So what's held our whole marriage together is there is actually 
praise be to God, a lot of harmony in our home. It's peaceable, it's enjoyable. I work from home, I enjoy home. Even now that we're under quarantine, I'm good. I love Grace, I love my kids. My home is a peaceful, enjoyable, actually fantastic place to be. So I'm good being there. But a lot of it is because Grace and I both believe in the word of God. And as a result, it allows us to agree with one another. It allows us to agree with one another. We agree about Christianity. We agree about husband and wife roles. We agree about the blessing of children. We agree about how to resolve conflict. We agree about telling the truth. We agree about practicing forgiveness. We agree about praying for and with each other. There's a lot that just because of God's word, we don't have to fight about, argue about, we can just agree upon and enjoy harmony around. And so what is this? This is the word of God, Proverbs 30, verse five. He says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. In that day, if you were at war, you had a real problem if you didn't have a shield. As someone comes at you with an offensive weapon, you also need a defensive weapon. The Bible says that it is both our sword and our shield. It is our offensive and our defensive weapon. It protects your family against lies and cultural temptations and demonic deceptions. It also then takes every thought captive in obedience to Christ and allows your family to walk into the future with confidence under the provision of God's grace. All of this is to say, that there really is an enemy, our family really is at war, your marriage really is at war. And the best thing to know is how to wield the weapon that God has given you. This is the offensive and the defensive weapon and your family quite frankly is better with the Bible. There are some practical reasons and benefits of biblical agreement. I'll share those with you. Number one, agreement on primary life issues. Grace and I, we didn't have to argue about whether or not we are gonna have kids. The Bible says they're a blessing. We love kids, so we're happy to have a family. We didn't need to fight over that. The Bible says that we're supposed to give at least, I'm a tither, I'm not gonna be legalistic about it, but we've always given at least 10%. That's kind of our floor, not our ceiling. So we don't have to fight about that in our budget. We're going, well, you know what? God first in our finances. We want our kids to know and love the Lord. So that helped us pick their educational path. Uh, when it comes to when we hurt each other, forgiving one another, all of these things are just causing agreement on primary life issues. We go to church together. We serve Jesus together. We pray together. We raise the kids together. We're partners in everything and we love each other. And all of that is because the word of God gives us agreement on primary life issues. If we didn't agree on these things, let me just say it would be painful. The statistics bear out the couples that have the lowest rates of divorce and the highest rates of marital happiness are Bible-believing, church-going, Jesus-loving Christian families. Those couples and families that have the most drama and the most divorce are where two people practice two different religions. It's impossible to have a healthy, holy, happy marriage with two people who are devoted to different gods and then add children and it's like a hostage negotiation. What do we do with the kids? And so if you do have agreement on primary life issues, it just benefits the whole family because now we are building a life and a family working from the same architecting blueprints of God's word. Number two, it creates a unified blueprint for all of life and family. 
The Bible talks about sex. The Bible talks about marriage. The Bible talks about parenting. The Bible talks about money. The Bible is intensely practical about every aspect of life. And as a result, you can architect your life as a family. Here's what we're gonna do with our marriage. Here's what we're gonna do with our finances. Here's what we're gonna do with our kids. Here's what we're gonna do with our future. Here's what we're gonna do with our friends. The Bible tells us how to architect a life. You would never live in a home that wasn't architected. But many people live in a life that's not architected. They didn't really have a blueprint or a plan. The husband and the wife didn't sit down and ask, okay, how do we want life to look? The word of God gives you the plan of God so that you can have a family and a life together as a married couple. And one of my pastors, Jimmy Evans, likes to say, there's a 100% guaranteed success rate for husbands and wives who will obey the word of God. If he and she do what God says, it's 100% guaranteed to work every single time because God made you, God made the world, and God gave us the word of God to architect a life that God wants to bless and be involved in. Number three, it, God's rule reduces domineering. Somebody has to be the leader in the relationship. Somebody has to be the leader in the home. Somebody has to be the authority. And if it's a war between the husband and the wife, it's going to end up in a domineering sort of competition where dad's the domineering one or mom is the domineering one. And let me just say this. If you grew up in a home where mom or dad were domineering, my guess is you would say that was a difficult environment to grow up in. It was a sad environment to be raised in. If the word of God is the ultimate authority, then if mom and dad and then leading the kids to do the same, submit to God's authority as revealed in God's word, then nobody has to dominate or domineer anybody. We all just obey God because he's the highest authority. And it really does have some very practical implications for health and well-being and unity within the family. Number four, it establishes priorities, thereby reducing jealousy. Jealousy is what happens when someone or something takes my place. Jealousy can be a bad thing, but it is not always a bad thing. God says he gets jealous. God says, you know, I wanna be first in your life. And when I'm not, that doesn't work for me. So for me, the Bible gives very clear priorities. Uh, number one, my relationship with my God and savior, Jesus Christ. That's my first priority. My next priority is my wife, Grace. She is my priority. After that, each of our five children is my next priority. After that is my job as a pastor doing ministry. I cannot allow ministry to be more important than my kids. I can't allow my kids to be more important than my wife. I can't allow anyone or anything cut in line in front of the Lord Jesus. My time, my energy, my money needs to be allocated according to God's priority. And what that does, that mitigates against jealousy. When everyone knows the priority order that God gives, then we're not feeling jealous because everything is according to God's provision and it will then receive God's blessing. And then number five, it puts the family in a place that God wants to bless and help. God doesn't just bless families or marriages. He blesses marriages and families that are in the place that he told them to be. If God told you, live like this, be like this, right? Here's, here's the priorities that I have for you. Here's how I want your life architected. If you will obey him, he is more likely to bless you because he blesses obedience to his word. 
Similarly, if you disobey his word, you're probably diminishing the odds that he's going to bless you. God is a father and we are his kids. And any good parent will tell you, you don't reward bad behavior. If you reward bad behavior, you'll get more bad behavior. So what you do, you teach holiness, godliness, wisdom, and obedience by not giving blessing to bad behavior and giving blessing to good behavior. You incentivize good behavior. God's the same way. That if we open the word of God and we're like, okay, God, the Bible says I'm supposed to love my wife like Jesus loves the church. Help me do that. He wants to help. The Bible says, raise your children in the instruction of the Lord. Okay, God, we want our kids to know you. Help us figure out how to pray with them and love them and tell them about Jesus. He wants to help you with that. For those that have the want to, they have the heart of obedience, the Holy Spirit comes to help them with a how-to, the steps of obedience. But the how-to precedes the want to, and the how-to has to come from the Word of God, and then the Spirit of God will help with the how-to. Here are some ways, however, that men, and I know many of you women are tuning in, I'm honored to have you, but men can use and abuse the Bible. And I'm a Bible guy, I love the Word of God, I believe the Word of God, I've been teaching and preaching the Word of God my entire adult life. This is the Word of God, it is to be used, not abused. And some men will use it and other men will abuse it. And some of you guys, just because you quote a verse, you think that you're biblical, that may not always be the case. Satan was known to quote a few things that God had said as well. So let me tell you about some guys who abuse the Bible. And what I wanna do here is uh, I want you to examine yourself and to see if maybe you're using the Bible in a way that is abusing your family, not loving and leading your family, but abusing your family. Number one, the theologian. This is the guy who everything is a theological debate. Everything is a fight. He's got an answer to every question. The problem with this guy tends to be is that he thinks that the primary purpose of the Bible is um, information, not transformation. He likes to win arguments, not people. He likes to turn the Bible into his version of the popular game show, Jeopardy. He always likes to have the facts and the answers. This guy tends to be highly non-relational. You don't really ever get to know him. He just keeps throwing verses out and all you get to do is interact with his systematics or his detailed conclusions. You never really get to know him. And he also tends to be very impractical. I literally, I know a guy, I love him with all my heart. I'm praying for him if you're watching this. Thanks for you know, enduring. But man, the guy, every time I talk to him, it's something else that has nothing to do with anything. He's like, what do you think the mark of the beast is? I don't know. When do you think the rapture is? I don't know. You know, what, what do you th- who do you think, you know, the guys married, the first brothers in Genesis, was there, I don't know. Here's what I do know. Your wife doesn't like you. So all of this goofy stuff, you know, what do you think about the rapture? I, look, I don't know. Here's what I do know. Your wife doesn't like you. You're, you're studying secondary issues. You're coming to dogmatic conclusions for things that we don't know or have not happened you need to focus on the practical stuff that the Bible says about relationship and how to love your wife and kids, right? I mean, you need to take the information, use it for transformation, right? Not just take the information as if your goal was to pass a test. The goal is to live a life. That's the problem with the theologian. The problem with the bully, 
He knows the Bible and he'll just pull it out like a weapon to hammer you. If you get into a debate, if you get into a disagreement, if you get into a discussion, he just quotes a verse so that he can just sort of push you around. Well, the Bible says, God says, you agree with God, don't you? Jesus says, don't you agree with Jesus? Yes, I do. And you're not nice like him. That's the problem with the bully. They use the word of God as a weapon to win their arguments and to conquer, domineer, defeat other people. That's not the point of the word of God. The point of the word of God, I'll get to in a moment, is to make you like Jesus. The guys who did this to Jesus were the guys who killed Jesus. They were the theologians and the bullies. Jesus was wrong, they were right. They were not coming to learn, they were coming to teach. They were not coming to be corrected, they were coming to correct. They were coming to win and they're quoting verses against God, murdering God in the name of being true to the Bible. This is what happens when the theologian and the bully come together, you get the Pharisee. In addition, there is the hypocrite. The hypocrite is the guy who quotes verses, but they're for other people. <laughs> they're not for him. This is the dad who's like, hey, sons, you know, you're supposed to be the husband of one wife. Well, dad, why did you run off and have a girlfriend? You were always taking us to church and quoting verses and then, and then committing adultery. Dad, that, that's hypocrisy. Dad, you say that we should love and serve God. And then you sleep in and watch football on Sunday and you don't, you don't go worship God. Mom does, but you don't. The hypocrite is the guy who preaches something he doesn't practice. And people will always say, you need to practice what you preach. I actually think you should preach what you practice. You should take the word of God for yourself first, and then from your life lessons, share it with others. That will keep you from being the hypocrite. The hypocrite is I studied to tell you what to do. No, 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 study so that God can tell you what to do. And then if someone else needs some help, you can help them after you have done what God told you to do, to do. I'll give you a crazy example. Um, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, preaching and teaching. I actually have a fairly decent list of pastors that I know who teach on marriage and family, but don't make love to or have a date night with their wife. They have amazing theology of marriage, but they don't have a great marriage. They have great advice for everybody else, but it never applies to them. That's the hypocrite. That's the hypocrite. It's almost like uh, when you're on a plane and they say, hey, if turbulence hits and the mask falls down, put it on yourself first, then someone else. That's what we need to do with the word of God. Okay, me, then you. Before I need to tell you what to do, I need to make sure that I'm doing what God told me to do. The perfectionist is the one that they see the Bible as nothing but a set of impossible laws perfection. And so they're just waiting for you to do something wrong. And then they're going to quote a verse. They'll pull it out like an arrow and shoot you. Here's what you did. Here's your fault, flaw, or failure. Here's the mistake you made. God's word says that you get an F, you failed the test again. And if you grow up in that kind of religious, perfectionistic environment, it is completely discouraging. There's no forgiveness. There's no grace. There's no process. The Bible says that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God. Luke chapter two, Jesus got to grow, Jesus got to learn. He never did sin and he was perfect, but he got to learn and he got to grow. And we need to give people process and opportunity to learn and to grow. And what the perfectionist does, they just use this to just cut everybody down and criticize everyone else. 
If you grew up in a home like that, you might've thought that that's the heart of God because you thought that was the word of God. That's not how this works. The Bible does talk of perfection to show us that we really need Jesus. That we're not perfect. We need Jesus who is perfect. Of our own power, we're not gonna live a holy, obedient life. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to see what God's standard is so that we can see where we fall short, so that we can see how much we need Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can become more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the goal is ultimately progress and perfection doesn't come in this life. It only comes in the eternal life. But if you're a perfectionist, you're the person who is literally always grading others on a pass fail scale. And if they don't get perfect, then they get an F and that's demotivating. And what this leads to, especially in parenting, it leads to rebellion in the kids. They finally reach the point where like, I can't do this anymore. I can't be perfect. So if I'm just gonna get an F, I'm gonna go live a life of total rebellion because if it's all or nothing and I can never do all, then I am going to do nothing. It puts them in a really precarious position as a parent. And then also the coward. The coward is the guy who believes the Bible, but he skips all the parts that might cause some sort of conflict or controversy. Hey dad, what does the Bible say about hell? Well, I don't know, a lot of scholars disagree. You know, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't wanna get into that. What does the Bible say about money? Dad? Well, I, I don't know, you know, people don't like to talk about money. They don't like to talk about God. They don't like to talk about hell. You know, the Bible says to love people. We just need to love people. This is the guy that when Christianity is under attack, he doesn't really say anything. Or when he's asked a hard question, he just sort of mumbles or stutters or changes the subject. This is the guy who there are parts of the Bible that he's almost ashamed of or scared by. These are ways that men commonly abuse the Bible, commonly abuse the Bible, commonly abuse the Bible. And you just need to know that there are also five ways that men can use the Bible. Here's Jesus. Why do I tell you this? I want you to be a Bible guy, but some guys who use the Bible think they're Bible guys. They're not Bible guys. They're abusing the word of God. They're not using the word of God. Five ways men can use the Bible. I'm gonna quote Jesus here. And I've numbered these things and we'll revisit them momentarily. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing, Mark 12, 28 through 31, with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So there's a big debate, right? Probably the theologians and the bullies and everybody's having the argument and they're all disagreeing and there's a big conflict. Jesus shows up and they're like, all right, what do you think? Everything in the Bible. And at this point they have the Old Testament. Okay, in there, okay, what's the big idea? What's the cliff notes? If you had the bullseye, what is it? Right, is it, is it theological? We need to get all of our answers right, is it? to beat everybody up as a bully? Is it to permit our own sin? Is it to hold others to a perfect standard? Is it to just love people and not talk about the hard things? What's the point of the Bible, Jesus? Jesus answered, the most important is, number one, hear, O Israel, it's the people of God. Number two, the Lord. Number three, our God. The Lord is one, number four. And number five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's your emotional life. All your soul, that's your spiritual life. With all your mind, that's your mental life. With all your strength, that's your physical life. Jesus is talking about all of you. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
greater than these. So how can men use and not abuse the Bible? In context here, a bunch of men are having a debate. They're having a dialogue. They're having a discussion. What is the right way to use the Bible? That's the debate. So another man shows up, Jesus Christ, and gives the right answer. And he says, number one, number one, listen. He says, hear, O Israel. The first thing that is required for a man to truly be biblical is to be humble. I get paid to talk for a living and I'll be honest with you, the most important thing I do is not talking, but it's listening. I spend a lot of time in silence and solitude. I spend a lot of time in study and prayer. I spend a lot of time in worship and repentance because I wanna hear whatever God has to say to me. Before I say anything, I wanna hear what God has to say. And my whole prayer and goal, and we all do this imperfectly, but the whole prayer and goal would be to echo what he's saying. That's all. Not to say what I'm thinking, but to echo what he's saying. So it starts with hearing and that requires humility. And this may mean, man, you have to learn to a Bible teacher. You may need to listen to a pastor. You may need to read a book. You may need to listen to the Bible on your commute into work. You, you may need to invite voices into your life, even other men to speak into your life and you gotta be willing to hear. Number two, he says, uh, the Lord. What this is, this is submission to authority. It is saying that God is in authority because as men, we have certain areas that we have certain jurisdiction. Maybe in your home, you're the leader in your business, you're the leader on your team, you're the leader in your church, you're the leader, but ultimately you're not the Lord. Even if you're the leader, you're never the Lord. And doesn't matter how high of a leader you are, there is still a Lord over you. This is submission to authority. This is recognizing the father position of God and you are in the position of son and he is in authority and you honor and respect his authority. Number three, our God. And what he's talking about here is joining a team. That if you're truly going to be biblical, you cannot be an isolated, independent, autonomous individual. God is making a family for himself. God is making a people for himself. This is the language of the Bible. Much if not most of the Bible was written to groups of people, not just individuals. The few books written to individuals were to help them lead groups of people. So the end zone was ultimately relational community and people together on a team. Ultimately, if you are a guy who says, I don't like to listen, I don't like to be under authority and I don't like to be part of a group, you can't be biblical. God made you to listen, God made you to obey, and God made you to be part of a team that is Team Jesus, our God, not just your God. And one of the things we do, we tell people to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which I agree with. They also need a corporate relationship with Jesus Christ. You have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's like being in a family. Right, you've also got brothers and sisters. Your relationship is not just up to your father, but it's out to your brothers and sisters. When you become a Christian, you join a family and it's not just the Lord, your God, it's the Lord, our God. So you gotta figure out what's my church, what's my team, who are the guys I'm gonna do life with, who am I gonna do relationship with, who am I gonna invite in to speak and I'll listen to them. And then number four, the Lord is one. Here it is pursuing unity. The language here is from the Old Testament. It's something that the Jewish people would cite three times a day. It was called the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy 6.4, if my memory is correct. Hear Israel, the Lord our God is one. One, God is one. Father, Son, Spirit, one God. 
Father, Son, Spirit, one God. Husband and wife are to be one. God is one. God's people are to be one. It's working here toward unity. And what he's talking about here very, very practically, the Lord is one, is that you have issues and you have relationships. And when it comes to you being part of a a family, maybe you're the husband, father, church family, where you're a member of the church family, there are issues and there are relationships. And the goal is to have the relationship be more important than the issue. Guys will take secondary tertiary issues out of the Bible and they will blow up relationships for things that are not at that level. I like to say there are closed-handed issues, open-handed issues. These are things that we can disagree about, we can dialogue, we can even debate, but we don't need to divide. These are things that are essential for Christian faith. One God, three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus is fully God, fully man, lived without sin, died on the cross, rose as our savior is coming again to judge the living and the dead with eternal heaven and hell hanging in the balance. So closed-handed and open-handed issues. What happens is that some people will take every issue, put it in the closed hand, and then they'll blow up all of their relationships over things that are not meritous of that level of intensity. Everything is important, but not everything is equally important. Ultimately, there are things that you can disagree on and still love Jesus and believe the Bible. There are other things that we have to agree on. Otherwise we have forgotten Jesus and we have denied the Bible. And what he's talking about here, um, the Lord is one and God wants to be one with you. And he wants his family, his people, his children to be one together. If you only use the Bible to divide and not to unify, you're not being biblical. The ultimate goal of the Bible is to bring unity and harmony among God's people, not division and acrimony between God's people. Number five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The primary driving goal of the Bible is not just informational, it's relational. It's informational in that it is to shape you to become like Jesus so that then you can be relational and love like Jesus. Ultimately, what he's saying is that the end zone of the word of God is not winning the argument. It's not getting your way. It's not getting every single potential hypothetical curious question you might have answered, but that the Holy Spirit would make you increasingly after the character of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would love God. You would love God and have this relationship with God where he's your father, you're his son, and you love your dad. You know that your dad loves you and you do life with your dad. And when you grow up, you just wanna be more like your dad. Just wanna be like your dad. And then you take that love that God has for you from the father, through the son, by the spirit. God demonstrates his love for us in this that ultimately God has poured out his love into our hearts, that we receive this love from the Father through the Son by the Spirit, and then we take this love and we share it. That means I love you and I forgive you and I serve you and I'm generous to you and I wanna lift a burden for you. And when you're hurting, I wanna be present with you. And when you're celebrating, I wanna be rejoicing with you. Ultimately, the primary driving result of the Bible according to Jesus it's relational. So how do you know that you're biblical? Question, how's your relationships? How's your relationship with God? Some of you say, I don't have a good relationship with God, but I'm very theological. No, you're not. 
You're not theological unless you're relational. You're not biblical unless you're relational. How's your relationship with your wife? If you're married, so I don't have a good relationship. Okay, then it's not a very biblical relationship because love is supposed to be the evidence of a biblical relationship. How's your relationship, not just with your kids, but every single one of your kids? Do they know that you love them? Do they know that you love them? If they don't, you can quote a lot of verses, but you're not being biblical because the goal is that God's love would go to your kids. How is your relationship with friends? Loving, how's your relationship with your church? Loving, how's your relationship with your extended family? Loving, let me say this guys, I think that most problems that men have are relational and many men are non-relational because they don't understand the relational nature of God and the relational nature, I should say, of God's word. So I'm not trying to pick on you, but I'm trying to point something out to you. And that is this, God's word ultimately is to make you like God's son so that God's love could flow to you, that God's love could flow through you, that his relationship with you would change your relationship with others. That's the point, that's the point. And what I've seen in 25 years as a senior pastor is men who abuse this book are non-relational or they'll use it to do relational harm instead of to bring relational healing. Couple of things for those of you guys who are joining us in small groups and thank you for doing it. Uh, what are some benefits you've experienced from biblical agreement in your family and church family? When my family or my church family has had agreement around the word of God, these are the benefits that we experience. Number two, what pains have you experienced from a lack of biblical agreement in your family and church family? When there's been a disagreement in your family or church family, there's not unity around the word of God. What does that feel like? What does that cost? Number three, uh, have, how have you seen yourself and other men abuse the Bible? I'll be honest with you. When I first got married to Grace, I have a, I have a real intense memory. I read very fast. I, I think well on my feet. I verbal process. I argue pretty well. And I could win an argument with my wife. And I could just sort of pile on verses and quote theologians and roll 100 miles an hour. And I would win the argument and lose my wife. She felt steamrolled by me, okay? That's not biblical, that's not godly, that's not right, that's not the father heart of God, that's not the model of Jesus. How have you perhaps abused instead of just used the Bible? And number four, how does a healthy relationship with God and others change your view of the purpose of the Bible? Change your view of the purpose of the Bible. God's word is to ultimately give you a loving, healthy relationship with him and with others. Take a look at it, how's it going? And then go back to the word of God and have him course correct whatever changes need to be made. I love you, I'll be in the Bible with you every week. This was just my burden for this week. I don't want you to just quote verses, I want you to be like Jesus because that's what it means to be biblical. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a dad who talks to us. Thank you that you're a dad that speaks very specifically and practically to us. Thank you, Lord God, that the Bible is filled with amazing big concepts to study that just sort of stretch our imagination, but also practical next steps for our application. Pray God for the men that they would be biblical. And as a result of being biblical, that they'd be more relational. They'd be more loving. They'd listen better. They'd serve better. They'd be emotionally present. They would unburden. They would forgive. They would bring wisdom that when people are around them, they would increasingly see them becoming more like Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for your time.